This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. What, what do you think really matters in life? A satisfying job? A happy family? A good education? Fame? Achievement? Money? Power? Pleasure? Accumulating a lot of stuff? Do you really suppose that you win if you die with the most toys, as someone has said. (laughs) I, uh, I wouldn't count on that. What really matters in life is you, because you matter to God. You matter to God. You matter to God. You matter to God. Because you are the pinnacle of God's creation, made in his image, created to to live in relationship with him. But when sin entered the human race, What matters most to God, you and and me, became estranged from him, separated by the barrier of sin. And so what was God to do? He created us to live in fellowship with him. He created us because he wanted people with whom he could have a living relationship. He created us because he wanted to be with us. And then sin enters the picture, and all of that is hindered. God's desire to have relationship with us and fellowship with us is diminished. Well, his desire is not diminished, but the the ability for that to happen is diminished because the sin in our lives uh, becomes a, a barrier. So how would God remove the barrier of sin and restore us who matter most to him to a healthy relationship with him? The Bible is the beautiful amazing story of God's plan to remove the problem of sin and restore us to the relationship that he has desired from the beginning. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories that illustrate just how much we matter to God. And not only how much we matter to God, but how far God is willing to go to win us back. Ironically, the attitude of the religious leaders 
among the Jews, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the attitude of these people toward those who matter most to God prompted Jesus to tell these stories. In Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, that is, Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Their attitude was the exact opposite of God's attitude. Jesus welcomed the so-called sinners. And so Jesus tells these three stories to illustrate the valuable truth that, that people no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how sinful they may be, people matter to God. The first story is the story of the lost sheep. Beginning in verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now this individual sheep was just one of a flock of a hundred not very significant, you may think, not all that important, but this individual sheep mattered to the shepherd. He was not content with the 99 that were safe in the sheepfold. The possession of the 99 was no substitute for the loss of the one. And so he leaves the 99 and he goes out to search and to look for the one that was lost. And he pursues it until he finds it. And then he gladly hoists it to his shoulders and brings it home. Now, does this mean that he loves the 99 less? No, no, of course not. Because he loved them all, he could not bear to lose even one. 
And so he brings this lost sheep home and he calls his friends and neighbors together for a celebration party. Rejoice with me, he says, I have found my lost sheep. And Jesus says in verse 7, In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence, excuse me, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Who are the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to whom Jesus was telling these stories thought that they were so righteous, so, so right with God that they did not need to repent. But obviously they were mistaken. Jesus tells this story to them to correct their wrong attitude towards others. The 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent do not exist. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. This lost sheep mattered to the shepherd. And you are the lost sheep. You matter to God. Then Jesus tells the, the second story, the story of, of the lost coin, beginning in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this coin mattered to this woman. It represented a day's wages. And in a household of meager means, it would be a significant financial loss. Her family would endure hardship over the loss of this coin. Or it may have been part of a very precious possession. In first century Palestine, uh, the mark of a married woman was a headband of ten silver coins linked together with a silver chain. And some girls, some young women who came from less well-to-do families would scrape and save for years to get together ten silver coins 
to make a headband. The headband was, was comparable to the wedding ring in our society, our culture. Either way, whether it was simply a lost coin that represented a significant part of the family's uh, income, or whether it was a precious possession that, uh, uh, that was lost, she searched diligently for the coin because it was very, very precious to her. Now, she had to go to a lot of trouble because houses of the common people were usually uh, small, cramped, cluttered, and often windowless. But those conditions didn't keep her from turning the house upside down because the lost coin was so valuable and precious. And when she found it, she called her friends and neighbors to celebrate and rejoice. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You and I are the lost coin. You and I matter to God. Now we come to the climactic story in this trilogy of Jesus, the story of the lost son, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The, father, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, there are <clears throat> more details in this story than the other two. And the stakes are higher because we're dealing with a lost son, a heartbroken father, and a bitter, vengeful older brother. Some people consider this to be the greatest short story in the world. Now, what can we say about the younger son? Well, he was selfish. He was headstrong. He was foolish. He didn't care about his family responsibilities. He was extremely susceptible to the temptations of the flesh. He was wasteful, careless, and eventually desperate. In short, he didn't care about how he abused his father's love until he was slopping hogs and wishing to join them at the trough. Now we have to understand that the, the son in this family or in this story comes from a Jewish family. And for the Jews, pigs were unclean animals. They were forbidden to eat them. And so for this young man to, uh, to end up feeding pigs was literally scraping the bottom of the barrel. And if you could go any lower than that, 
then the job of slopping hogs for a Jewish young man was even lower than the bottom of the barrel. That's when he came to his senses. What can we say about the father? He must have been heartbroken to see his son so calloused toward his love. But he allowed the son to make his own choice. We're not told how long the son was in the distant country, but each day must have been an agonizingly painful experience for the father. He still had his older son, but there was a hole in his heart that only the younger son could fill. And when the younger son decided to come home, the father saw him at a great distance. Now, do you suppose that that just happened by accident? That one day the father happened to look up and look down the road, and lo and behold, here comes his son. Or do you think that the father was hoping, praying, believing that one day his son would come home. And so several times every day, he looked down the road to see if someone might be coming. I rather think the latter is the case. The father's love was so great that probably several times a day, he looked down the road, hoping, hoping that he would see his son returning. And one day his hope was realized. He saw his son at a great distance, coming home at last. And how did he react? Did he wait at the house? until the son arrived, and then fly into him with all kinds of reprimands and guilt trips and I told you so and you fool, look what you've done. No, no. When he saw him, he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and hugged him and kissed him. His son started to confess his sinful behavior and ask his father to take him back as a hired hand. But the father would hear none of that. He ordered a servant to bring the best robe in the house, the family ring for his finger, and sandals for his feet. These were signs of sonship, not servanthood. The father wasn't taking him back as a hired hand. He was welcoming him home as a son. And he called for the fattened calf and a feast to celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
you and I are the lost son. You and I matter to God. But the older son did not react to his brother's homecoming with joy and celebration. Instead, he was angry. Oh, he was really, really ticked. And he refused to participate in the party. Unlike his father, he would not forgive his brother's sins. And he felt like he deserved preferential treatment from the father because his loyalty had never wavered. He had remained home. He had exercised his, his family responsibilities in a responsible manner. He was loyal. He was dependable. But he was also self-righteous. And he could not see how his brother should be forgiven and welcomed by the Father. I think it's quite likely that Jesus included the response of the older brother in the story so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the Jews, those who were so smug and confident in their self-righteousness could not miss the implication. Their attitude towards sinners was exactly like that of the older brother. And it was so different, so, so different from God's attitude. Well, I think there are multiple lessons to be learned from the stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. First and, and foremost is the truth that God cares deeply about lost people. People who are estranged from him by sin. He cares so deeply that there is no limit to which he will not go to bring them back into his love and grace. That is the main lesson of these three stories. And if you don't remember anything else from today's message, please hold on to that. You matter to God. And God cares about you so deeply that there is no limit to which he will not go to bring you back into a loving relationship with him. But there are other important lessons for us as well, especially in the story of the lost son. There are three characters in this story. Uh, ladies, I'm, I'm sorry that none of them is a mother or a daughter or a sister. 
but I'm confident that you understand the lessons of the story apply to you as well as to us men. And what other, what other lessons can we learn? Well, how many of us can identify with the older brother? He was hardworking, he was loyal, he was dependable, he was conscientious, he was an all-around good, solid person. But he had at least one glaring fault. He was self-righteous. He felt everything ought to be about him. And he looked down his nose with contempt at his profligate brother. Are there people in our lives, maybe in our own families, or in our relationships with co-workers or relatives or neighbors or friends, are there people in our lives that we look at the way the older brother looked at his younger brother? What can we do or what can we learn from, from the father? Now, the father obviously represents God. And so we don't want to be presumptuous by saying that we can become God in this story. Obviously, we can't do that. But can't we strive to develop some of the Father's characteristics in our lives? Things like love, grace, mercy, forgiveness toward others. A group of ladies from uh, Parkview got together uh, during the summer and uh, they met for breakfast and fellowship and uh, they read and discussed a book entitled uh, Zip It by Karen Amon. Now, somebody once told me there's no point in getting older if you don't get a little smarter. And so I'm going to exercise some of my senior citizen wisdom and not comment about how the title of this book might be very appropriate for a ladies' book club. <laughs> well, I, I don't want you to think that, that I crashed the book club. My, my wife was a part of it as she told me about the story. And uh, I, I want to uh, share uh, a story from, uh, from the book that the author tells about a time when she was in college and uh, she was driving back to her dorm after an afternoon of, of shopping in the city. Uh, and another driver ran a stop sign and hit her broadside. Well, the author of the book was driving uh, an old Oldsmobile station wagon. And uh, the other driver was driving a brand new vehicle. Well, 
when they got out of the car, the, the, the author of the book realized that she recognized the other driver, someone she knew. And she was the teenage daughter of the college's baseball coach. Probably hadn't had her license very long. But she's driving this brand new car that her dad had purchased, and she runs a stop sign, and she smashes into the side of the other car. You can imagine that she was pretty, <laughs> pretty shaken by that experience. And um, at first, she was very apprehensive about calling her, her parents and informing them of what happened. But finally, she was persuaded to do that, and, and she called her, her dad and told him what had happened. And as soon as she explained that she was in a car accident, her dad asked over and over again, how are you? Are you safe? Are you okay? Do you have any injuries at all? Are you sure? Are you sure you're okay? Well, the girl confessed that the accident was entirely her fault, and she was really, really worried about the car and the damage she had done to it and how that would inflict uh, difficulty on her dad. But um, the father apparently wasn't concerned about the brand new car. His only concern was the welfare and the well-being of his teenage daughter, who was not exactly like the lost son in Jesus' story. She had not wasted her living in a sinful lifestyle. She had just made an honest mistake, apparently. And yet, her father did not reprimand her. Her father did not scold her. Her father did not go on about, oh my goodness, you've ruined this beautiful car. We just bought it, and now it's ruined. No. The only thing he was concerned about was her and that she was okay. Well, the author of the, the book says that she sees a great similarity between the father of this young teenage girl and the father in the story of the lost son. She says, both the girl and the son had a dad who responded to the bigger picture. In both verses 24 and 32 of Luke 15, we read that the father says of the son, he was lost and is found. The son, who had selfishly taken all of his inheritance from his father early, was now back home to confess he had been foolish. And amazingly, the father responds with joy, 
no bitterness, no guilt trips. The father didn't look at his clothes and remark on his shabby appearance. You can imagine what he looked like after swapping pigs for several days. In that moment, the father was able to step back and see the big picture of his son's homecoming. Two times within this parable, we see the father use the joyous phrase, he was lost and is found. And not only that, but the father says, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring the ring and put it on his finger. Bring sandals and put them on his feet. Bring the best that I have for my son who was dead but is now alive, who was lost and now is found. God is an I don't care what you've done, I'm going to love you anyway kind of God. You matter greatly to him. And he loves you so much that he gave his best to win you back. He gave his one and only son for you so that if you believe in him, you shall not perish, but have eternal life. Are you like the younger son in the story? Do you realize that you need to come home to your father God? but you're perhaps hesitant to do so because you're not sure how God's going to receive you. He will receive you just as the father in this story received his lost son. He will receive you with open arms, with joy, with celebration, with love and grace and forgiveness. Come to him to be forgiven and to be restored to a right relationship with him. You matter to God. Do you need to come home?